are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Good morning, church. My name is Marcus LeBaron. I am your lead children's pastor. And for those of you that are guests with us this morning or your new attenders, welcome. This is an awesome place to be. I'm new too. Um, my family just past September followed God's call and moved from Idaho to come all the way over here to join this amazing community of believers. And many of you have been asking us, how are you guys doing? How are your kids doing? How's it going with the transition? And church, I gotta tell you, just to testify that God is so faithful. He is so faithful, church. Um, we are doing wonderful. There is joy. There is peace. God is confirming over and over again. And we love living life with you. Thank you, church, for your arms open wide, loving embrace of us. We are so thankful for you, and we love you guys. It is awesome. Pastor Rick sends his greetings. He is at a conference um, for pastors who are leading churches over a thousand. And when I was super, super excited when Rick asked me to preach a couple weeks ago, and now I'm about ready to pass out. <laughs> not really, kind of. No, really. No, not. No. <laughs> But this morning, um, so all this month, we've been talking about living generously. And what does that mean in the kingdom of God? And this morning, we're going to take some time to focus upon the book of Philippians. So if you guys would open your Bibles or your electronic devices, whatever you have, and, and turn to the book of Philippians, we're going to do a quick run through and then kind of drill down on our key passage. Philippians is, is one of my favorite books it is a book of joy that comes from living in a right perspective. And I especially love a couple key passages. If you go to chapter 1, verse 3, I have started out letters. How many of you guys still write letters? No, not emails, letters. <laughs> right? Not many. Man, if I'm ever writing a letter, there's a reason behind it. And I have used some of this before. Thank my God for you. And then you go to verse 6 of chapter 1, and that promise, that being confident that he who began a work is going to complete it. Praise the Lord for that, huh? Verse 9, chapter 1, I pray for myself a lot, that my love would become more and more like his. And then um, we're going to get into chapter 2. Chapter 3, though, there is so much good in chapter 3. And then chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again. What? Rejoice. Yes. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And think on these things in verse 8. And then to verse 13 of chapter 4. You can probably say it with me. I can do all things through him, uh, Christ who gives me strength. Does any of this resonate with you, church? I love the book of Philippians. So today, though, swing all the way back to chapter 2. This is where we're going to hang out at. And I want to give you a little context into this letter as it will better help us understand 
why Paul wrote this and what this has to do with us. And as encouraging as the book of Philippians is, Paul wrote it from a Roman jail. And this isn't the nice cushy jail that we have today. This is dungeon, dark, rats, horrible living conditions. And Paul penned the book of Philippians from that. I don't know about you, but if I was in jail like that, I don't know I'd be writing a letter like that. And I read the book of Philippians, and I believe that the, the book of Philippians is a testimony to the, is an evidence of the powerful working of God in a surrendered life, the life of Paul. So Paul was writing to the church at Philippi. And Philippi was located in Macedonia, which is present-day Greece. It wasn't a large city. They estimate between ten to 15,000 people. But it, Philippi was a Roman colony. And it was located, um, and forgive my Italian, the, the, the Via Egonatia, whatever the... I don't know if I'm saying that right. There are probably some scholars who are saying, you slaughtered it. I hope not. The Via Egonatia. And so this was a road that linked Rome... With all of the East, it was a major travel route for trade and commerce and travel. And it ran right through the center of Philippi. Church. What a great place for a church to be. Think of the impact. And man, you know, that totally reminds me of us. Think about the way the culture we're living in. And the globalization of communication. The constant connectedness. We've got new ideas. We've got different cultures, new ways of thinking that are constantly flowing in to our homes. Church, what a fantastic time to be alive and have the light of Jesus within us. Isn't that awesome? So man, we, we, we share some good stuff with the, the church of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, and they had a strong loyalty to the official emperor cult. People worshipped the emperor. There are very few Jews. There are very few followers of Christ. And as a Roman colony full of Roman citizens, if there was one word for the day, it would be status. Status. It was all about who you were and how you were climbing the, the societal ladder of success. So I want you to remember that. You ready? What is it? Status. Yeah. <clears throat> if you turn back to Acts chapter 16, you'll see how the church in Philippi was started. Paul was on his second missionary journey and received a vision from God and left for Asia and traveled upon the Via Egonatia, where he happened upon... Um, women that were worshiping the God of Israel in the city of Philippi. And one of them was Lydia, who was the famous for making, remember, purple cloth. She was famous for making purple cloth. She becomes the first Christian convert and is a key player in this newborn church in Philippi. And although religious tolerance was supposedly practiced for Paul and Silas in their first visit to Philippi, it, they didn't see any of it. Paul and Silas, goes, the account goes, frees this young woman from a demon. 
she's a slave. But because of that, they were beaten and they were thrown in jail because this woman basically was the meal ticket for her master. She's being exploited. She had no rights. And that's the second thing I want you to remember as we're looking at why Paul wrote this letter is that slaves, servants, had no status. They were less, they were nothing, they were, they were less than nothing. They were worse than the, treated worse than the animals. So I want you to remember that for later. So two things. One, the desire for status in the day. And then two, the reality of what being a slave meant. Okay? Are you with me, church? Okay, why did Paul write the letter? I think that's important for us to understand. You get a clue if you go into Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And he says, whatever happens, he's talking to the church, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 29, two verses later, it says it's granted to not only believe, but to suffer. What tells us the congregation in Philippi, they were suffering persecution at the hands of their neighbors and the authorities. And so we had persecution from the outside that the church was experiencing. But, go figure, there's also disagreements within the church. (gasps) And in chapter 4, Paul begs these two people. He says, please, come to agreement. And then lastly, in chapter 3... Paul starts referencing um, people that were called Judaizers. And these were people who were insisting that the new Gentile converts who were not Jews, even though they weren't Jews, they had to follow all of the laws of the Jews. As if Jesus weren't enough. And so you've got persecution from the outside. You've got tensions and disagreements on the inside. And Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians because he is mentoring this young community of believers who are facing challenges inside and outside. And his desire is that they live out their personal and communal life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he kind of reaches the pinnacle in chapter 2. So if you turn there with me, And what he says, church, in chapter 2, it is crazy. It is so countercultural, so backwards to the normal thinking of the day that it must have taken the readers by surprise. So, would you please stand with me as we read? Yeah, I know, up and down, right? Probably should have. We all need our exercise. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish gain, ambition, or conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, 
became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So Paul starts out chapter 2 with four if questions that drill right down to who the Philippians are, whom they belong to, right to their heart, to their mindset. And Paul's questions to the Philippians aren't meant to question them. If they've actually experienced this, you, would, you, you could say, as surely as you have. So if you look back to chapter 2, it would be as surely as you have received the remarkable blessing of Christ, um, his love and comfort in times of suffering, as surely as you have a common bond, fellowship in the Spirit, have seen God's mercy and compassion, as surely as you have experienced all these things, church and Philippi, then we've got an obligation to treat others the same way that we have been treated by God. Whoa. Others. By others, what is Paul referring to? Those that are persecuting from outside the church? Sure. Those that are at odds in the church? You bet. Who are the others for you guys? Enemies? Strangers you meet when you go to the store? What about the classmates? What about that kid that is getting so far under your skin that, ooh, what about our coworkers? Would others include our family? Sometimes the hardest of all, our spouses, our children. Church, Paul's message to the Philippians is the same for us since we have experienced the blessing of a relationship with God, then we have an obligation to treat others the same way that we have been treated by God. Wow. How do we do that? Well, look at verse 2. It says, Be like-minded. What? Like-minded. We could, be, we could be tempting to think of an army, marching step, all uniform, no uniqueness. Nothing different. That's not the picture that Paul is painting for the church in Philippi. A more Im- an image that would more accurately represent what he's talking about would be, how many of you guys have been here for service and seen the orchestra, Pastor Harlan? Some of you? More of you raising your hand? Yeah. Man, it was, it was awesome this morning. We had saxophones here and trumpets and tubas and a xylophone and, and there was violin and oboe and a cello and there was... No tuba. And it was beautiful. All of those various instruments, beautiful and powerful and compelling when they're following the same sheet of music. Church, you and I, 
It is so beautiful and powerful and compelling to a world who doesn't know who Jesus is. When we are following the symphony our Jesus has given us. Not giving away our uniqueness and who we are. But hand in hand, together, like-minded, following the example of Christ. Church living generously is countercultural. It isn't always easy. It starts with me. It starts with you. Paul is calling us, instead of focusing inwardly on what I want and on what I desire, he is calling us to focus outwardly on what builds up others. And Paul's point is without true humility that prioritizes the needs of others and the concerns of others, there can be no true unity in the church. Paul's writing to a culture that is focused on independence, selfishness, conceit, drive, ambition. And then he says in verse 3, do nothing out of these motivations. What? Others better than myself? Are you kidding? Is this a message we need today, church? You turn on the TV, you go to the internet, you open up any magazine or newspaper or social media feed, and it is all about who? Me. Look at the good I'm doing. It's all about me. What makes me happy? Is my self-esteem okay? Popular culture encourages it over and over to put our own personal rights, our own personal choices ahead of everything else. We look out for who, church? Me. Look out for number one. Do what makes me happy. Humility is kind of a, kind of a contrary word today, isn't it? It's kind of looked down upon. And in the Greco-Roman world, humility was considered not a bad word, but you did not want to be humble. It, it, it was associated with groveling, a slave, something hardly admired or imitated. What was admired was how you were getting ahead. Paul sets before the church of Philippi and us a new paradigm church that is so beautifully modeled by our king. Go back to chapter 2. Look at verse 5. He says, hey, look, your attitude, and he spells it out really clearly, should be the same as Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing became the form of a slave, became obedient to death, but not just death, death on the cross. Paul is calling the followers of Jesus at Philippi to a countercultural living. He's saying, do this because our Savior has done it. The one who has wrote our sheep music is leading the way, and he's inviting us to join him. Isn't that awesome? 
And because of that, church, we have a new understanding of humility because of that example that Jesus set before us. And that's what Paul was talking about. Jesus was completely God. But instead of hanging on to it for his own advantage, he let it go, made himself nothing, become a slave. Remember the status of slaves? There's none. You're nothing. Can you imagine how shocking that would be to a culture that is focused solely on themselves? Kind of takes CBS's undercover bosses to a whole new level, doesn't it? (laughs) And verse 8 tells us that Jesus humbles himself, puts our needs before his own, and is obedient to death on the cross. A little time out here, church. The cross, that language has become so familiar to us. We have it on our necklaces. We've got it decorating in our homes. It's engraved on home decorations. It's bejeweled on our clothes. We've got it earrings, even tattooed on our skin. And I think, as I've been studying, I think it's important that we've got to understand that for a person living in that day, the cross was anything but that to be talked about. It was, it was something of horror, and I think it would be hard to describe the repugnancy for a listener of that day to be hearing about Jesus, God himself, being crucified on a cross. It was an instrument of terror that was used for the worst and most despicable of criminals. It, it combined excruciating torture with utter humiliation. Everyone knew that the crucifixion, the dying on the cross, was a penalty for slaves. How do you associate God with the cross? How could God be put on a cross? What a contradiction. And guys, I think unless we can reach a point, and I don't know that we ever will because it's such a foreign thing, but where we truly understand the depravity of the cross that we're going to have a hard time fully understanding the total humiliation. Total, all-embracing love that Jesus dying on the cross meant for you and for me. What Amazing love. What amazing love. Christ came from the summit of glory to die a death of a slave. Why? Because such limitless love shows us the very nature of who God is and how much He loves us. And this is the example of humility that is set before you and I. God shedding his blood for us. God humbling himself. Putting our needs before himself. And this church is our example. Paul's call to countercultural living, generous living, is personal. It starts with me. And it's communal. It's in relationship with others. So my title for this message of It's All About Me kind of probably sound kind of selfish, but it's really not. Um, and, and I'd like to 
I'd like to illustrate what that means um, with a garden hose. Do you guys have garden hoses in Oklahoma? You don't have irrigation. We have irrigation in Idaho, and, and it's a big deal. You guys just have rain. <laughs> so, first, what is, what is this created for? Yeah, it's definitely not created to just sit there unused, is it? If a hose is left unused, what's going to happen to it? It'll fade, it'll crack, and it won't be any good for what it's created for, will it? Church, how does this apply to what we're talking about? You and I are created to be used. You and I were created to serve, to live generously, to serve others is Christ-likeness. Selfish gain is cultural, worldly. To give, to live generously is Christ-likeness. Comfort, just to sit, what I want. That's cultural. It's not the kingdom of God. We are meant church to be used to serve. How many of you have doused the spouse when you've been out working in the yard? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes, I have. It's been a lot of fun. And I can't get my wife with the hose, get her wet with the hose when the kids are around because you know what they're going to do? The man, the goods are up when the kids are out there. They're like, oh, dad, dad's coming. So, one time, I was getting ready, and I was so excited to get my wife just going to get her good. And I was coming up, and I came around the corner, and I come, and I press the nozzle. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. And I look back, and guess what? There's a kink in the hose. Got a crimp in that hose right there. Sometimes, church, we've got, we've got to get the kinks out. Uh, think about my life. And I think about what things hinder me from living a life, from living generously. And for me, it's selfishness. Just me. Not sure I want to live that way because I want what I want. And it seems like daily I have Ask Jesus to help me lay that down and surrender. It isn't always easy, is it, church? I think the second thing that, for me, would be that crimp that keeps me from being all that God wants me to be is fear. If I obey, will I get what I want? Will I have what I need? Or what about fear that I won't be enough? And then I think about how perfect love casts out fear. And I think about the promise we read about earlier today about how he is faithful to complete what he has started. Praise the Lord for that. Hose was created to hold water, but 
Did you know that a hose can be holding water and still be absolutely useless? Case in point, I held a ministry team barbecue at my home and um, I filled up two five-gallon drink dispensers with water and lemonade and I used a hose to fill them up because it was connected to uh, house water, a faucet that gave me house water. And right when the party was in full swing, one of my friends, he gets some lemonade and he takes a chug and he stops and he smacks his lip. He says, this lemonade tastes like hose. In my humiliation, I realized what I had done. I had filled up the drink dispensers and I had never uh, let the water fully run through the hose before I filled them up. And I got hose lemonade. (laughs) Church, if a hose isn't taking in and flowing out, the water becomes stale. Are you with me, church? You know what I'm talking about? Water from a hose isn't supposed to taste like hose, just like we are not supposed to taste like us. That's why scripture doesn't say, taste and see that my followers are yummy. (laughs) Psalms 34, 80 says, taste and see that who is good? I am good. Taste and see that I am good. The hose, when the water is flowing unobstructed through the hose. It's being what it was created to be. And the thing is, the hose can't be what it's created to be without fully surrendering to the flow of the water. It's got to be emptied of anything that hinders, anything that is obstructing to be full of the life-giving water. Church, we have got to live like that. Through the laying down of Christ's life, we see who God really is. We see his great and powerful love for us. The emptying of ourselves, the surrender, and the world that is living in darkness sees a great light because of our surrender. Church, living generously starts with me. Only through the complete surrender of ourselves are we really going to live generously and be all that God has created us to be. Not losing our uniqueness and how God has created us, but by putting aside what we want and fully embracing what God wants. Following the pattern of our Lord and Savior. And they will see his love. And they're going to want some of that. Because it's not about me. It's about him. So, church, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. 
Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get obsessed, uh, get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourself the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. And instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst death at that, a crucifixion. But church, because of that obedience... God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything so that all created beings in heaven and earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship of this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. Amen. God is here. God desires to use you, to use us in living generously. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for us as a church? As we sing, I would invite you to respond how God is calling you. It's going to be different from other people. Maybe you want to pray at the altar. Maybe you want to raise hands and just praise. Maybe you need to go talk to somebody. However it is, whatever it is, arms wide open, Embrace what God has.
Father. He's so good to us. Thank you for love that passes all understanding that you have lavishly poured out on us. God, take our lives. Help us not to grasp so tightly to the things of this world that moth and rust destroy, but to seek you in all we do and who we are. Use us, Father. And when people see us, may they see you. We love you. In the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are dismissed. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.